Let's, uh, let's jump in. If you have your Bible, you can uh, turn to the book of Acts. I know it will be on the screen, but I just think it's good to turn there anyway. So flip in your Bible, or as Kevin says, if you have like an iPad, just go boop, 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 and then Acts 1 will come up. Do that. Turn to Acts chapter 1. And uh, we are in the midst of this series, just really started in the book of Acts, and we are going to be looking at the introduction a little bit today. Last week we gave an introduction, covered four major themes, talked about this idea of movement in the text, that the gospel is moving from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, that movement implies mission, that the book of Acts is evangelistic to the core, and we talked about that a little bit. We talked about the Holy Spirit being front and center in this book. There's no avoiding what the Spirit is doing and how the Spirit is moving in this text. And then uh, persecution is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's just going to be part of what it means to pursue Him, to uh, be on mission, to be a part of His work. And then last but not least, the church. We talked about how this book frames the beginning of the church. It is the story of our church. We are all part of the same church We got our beginning in Acts chapter 2, really, and then uh, we are a part of this movement of faith that is continuing on until God establishes His kingdom in fullness. And so we looked at a little bit of an introduction that was from last week. This week, we are looking at verses 1 through 5. Follow with me in the book of Acts. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What I want to do this morning is look at what I'm calling the foundations of the church. If you were to look at these first five verses, I think they highlight what is the foundation of the church, how it got established, how it began. And what I want to do is just look at this framework. And I'm going to go through the first part pretty quick. It will be rapid fire. And then we'll get to this last little framework and we'll settle into that one for a few moments. All right. So first, right from the gate, you see that Luke talks about the fact that the church was founded on the actions of Jesus. He says at the beginning uh, that in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, that he dealt with all that Jesus began to do. That all throughout Luke, you get this picture of miracles and of healing and of prayer and of baptism and the movement of Jesus and what he was doing and how he was acting and everything is compiled for us to understand in this Gospel of Luke, this this action of Jesus, that the church was founded on this action. In one of the other Gospels, John chapter 21, says this, Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. I love how they just kind of make that a generic statement. Jesus did just a lot of other things, too. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that's just a pretty bland statement at the beginning. Yeah, Jesus did a bunch of other things. In fact, so much so that like, we couldn't even record all of it. It would take up the entire world. But the church is founded on the action of Jesus. But you look also in the text here. And Luke says, 
that the church is founded on Jesus' teaching. So not only was it founded on what Jesus began to do, it was also founded on what Jesus taught about. What he did and what he taught. Jesus talked about no single thing more than he talked about the kingdom of God. If we were to go through the Gospels, you would see this again and again. I just pulled out a few examples. In Mark chapter 1, it says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. In the Gospel of Matthew, he said this, And he went all about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affirmity among the people. Again, you see this action of doing and teaching, doing and teaching. Also in Matthew, a little later on, and Jesus went into all the cities and villages. We talked about this at another time. That's 280 approximately. So he went into all of the villages and all of the cities, about 280, moving from town to town, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affirmity. I'll give you one more in the Gospel of Luke, since Luke is our author. He said this, and Jesus said, the kingdom of God does not come with uh, does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So Jesus taught about the kingdom at multiple levels. He taught about it as this grand thing that will come at the end of time, but he also taught about it as something that was already present in the form of Jesus and also present found in us. And he talked about it in ways that no one else ever talked about the establishing of a kingdom, that he said it's in our heart, that it's in us as individuals. And so he started this movement of the church person by person by person. That movements often start with small change. It's not some grand sweeping thing that happens, but movement begins kind of grassroots. It starts small, and the life of one is affected, and then that impacts another, and then that impacts another. And then the gospel, it says, like a mustard seed, that the kingdom of God grows from the tiniest seed until this massive tree. That there's this movement that takes place because of the teaching of Jesus. Let's move to the third one. The church was founded on the resurrection. So it says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now obviously from a theological perspective, the resurrection is kind of like the center of everything. It's what we found all of our faith on. So obviously it's very important and obviously it's the foundation of the church. But what's interesting to me about this text and about this understanding of the beginning of the church is that the resurrection fundamentally shifted the focus of the disciples. The disciples went from these people that had great fear to people that had incredible faith. And you see that at the end of almost every book, the Gospels, you see this lack of faith and then you see the shift in Acts to something completely opposite. Let's look for just a moment in Mark 16. It says this, and I'll kind of skip around a little bit in this text. Very early in the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they, Jesus' followers, went to the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And then it goes on to say that they looked, they went inside, they saw a man sitting there, and then he began to say, hey, he 
was crucified, but he's no longer here. He's risen. And it says this. Um, he gives them the instruction, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I mean, this is the initial reaction of the disciples or the followers of Jesus. Go tell everybody about this, and they're like, okay, I'm freaking out. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. But the, the weight and the gravity and the, just the beauty of the resurrection changed everything so that when you see in the book of Acts, you see this complete change. You see them preaching to thousands and thousands of people. You see them being persecuted for what they're saying. The government officials saying to them, hey, listen, don't say anything more. Go away quietly. And they go, well, you're kind of not our ruler anymore. God is, and so we're going to go out and preach it even more. They consider themselves, the text says, worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what you see in the Gospels. Why? Because the church was founded on the resurrection. A fundamental shift happened in the belief of the disciples in such a way that it motivated them to move from fear to this place of great faith. So you see all of these things so far. The, the, the church is founded on the teachings and the actions of Jesus. It's also founded on the resurrection. But the fourth and kind of final one, and we're going to sink into this for a few moments, is that the church was founded on the commands of Jesus. And in the first 11 verses, you see two major commands, but we're going to look at the first one today. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and it says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, here's the first command. Ready for it? Wait. That's the first command. Jesus is starting to change the world. He's starting the church, which is the greatest change agent in the world. And he says this, wait. We're like eight seconds in and it's already getting awkward, right? In waiting. I mean, theologically, this is how I feel about waiting. It sucks. I hate it. I I don't know about you, but maybe you feel similar when it comes to waiting. I I thought that uh, in the Psalms, you know that many of them are laments. I think about... Uh, a majority of the psalms are laments. Laments are a chance where the author kind of communicates to God, God, this is what I hate about the situation. Waiting is talked about quite often. I thought what we would do is take 30 seconds to write our own psalm, okay? A holy lament on waiting. What do you hate about waiting? Say it right now. Offer it up, okay? What do you hate about waiting? Why do you not like to wait? Tell me. Boredom. Okay, not knowing what's going to happen. I want it now. Out of control, good. What else? Why do you hate to wait? This is holy. Feel good about it. It's okay. Just get it out. Other things to do, yeah. Okay, anxiety, worry, tension. 
Okay, it feels useless. I should be doing something with my time. But we could, we could list a bunch more. If I was Jesus, I probably wouldn't have started with the command, wait. I would have come up with something else. I love this quote by Abraham Lincoln. It's one of my favorites. He says this, things may come to those who wait, but only things left over by those who hustle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's kind of how I was raised. Like, get hustling, make this thing happen, and then you don't have to wait, Right? That's, if I was, if I was uh, Jesus, that's probably what I would have started with. So I've got a quote from a, a deep theologian here. Dr. Seuss, he said this in uh, this child book that, uh, that we have. Oh, the places you'll go. I don't know if you've read this before. But he says, congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. Next slide. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. And he says, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. You can get so confused that you'll start in a race, headed, I fear, toward the waiting place, where people just wait. Waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come. Or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Waiting for the fish to bite, waiting for the wind to fly a kite, waiting around for Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Truth be told, much of life is waiting. Think about it. Majority of what we do in the day at times can be waiting. One of my least favorite times to wait is in an appointment for a doctor. Anyone with me on that? I love when you sit out there and then you go in and the doctor is like, hey, what are we here to see you for today? And I want to say every time, I don't, but I want to say, well, I was here for a physical, but for the last 30 minutes I've been sitting with 20 diseased people. And so I don't know, what am I here for? <laughs> but you better give me a lot of stuff because I think I'm getting something, right? <laughs> You're just sitting waiting and you hate it. At least that's how I feel. Some of you are waiting to graduate. It's about here. Congratulations, the wait is almost over. Some of you are waiting to be accepted into a program. Maybe you're waiting for a job offer, waiting for your house to sell, waiting for the loan to go through at the bank. Maybe you're waiting for Mr. Wright, the perfect person. Maybe you uh, are waiting to find out what God even wants you to do. I'm sure some of you are there. Um, maybe you wait in a long car ride with screaming children. I'm just saying I've been there before. Um, and maybe you're waiting for prayers to be answered. Needless to say, waiting is central to our faith. It's a big component of what we do in our relationship with God. Let me give you a couple examples in the scriptures. Abraham was 75 years old. He was told when he was 75, you're going to have a son and he's going to be great among the nations and that he will start this group of people, and it will be awesome. And then he waited 24 years 
for that to take place. Joseph, things are going to work out for you. It's going to be really good. But for 13 years, he waited in imprisonment and betrayal and abandonment before taking his position in Egypt. Israel waited 400 years in Egypt to get out. While Moses waited 40 years tending sheep until God said, go deliver them. Then he delivered them, and then he waited 40 years to get them to the promised land. I mean, a lot of waiting going on in the scriptures. You see this pattern over and over. See, waiting isn't just incidental to faith. Waiting is part of the DNA of faith. It's part of what faith is about. Will Willman said this, Show me a person who is not waiting for something more to come, not yearning, not leaning forward, standing on tiptoe for something better, and I will show you a person who's given up hope for anything better. Someone who has settled down too comfortably in present arrangements. And that's sad. The future belongs to those who wait, for those who know that we are meant for something better. So Jesus gives this command, right? at the beginning to the church. And he says, I want you to wait here for the Holy Spirit. Now, who did he give that command to? This is my assumption based on the text and based on studying. He gave that command to everyone that he talked to as he met them after the resurrection, post-resurrection. So he's around for 40 days. So he gave that command to like Mary and Martha and the disciples. He gave it to the two dudes on the road to Emmaus. He gave it to the people he met with give you a little picture of what that looks like in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. through Paul's talking and he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and then to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and that He appeared to James and to all the Apostles. If you do the math, it's like 500 plus a few other people. So it's around 500 to 520 people that he talked with. And gave the command, wait for the Holy Spirit. First command, wait for the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1-4, we just read it, that's where we see it. Don't depart from Jerusalem. Stay here. Wait for the Spirit. Fast forward just a little bit. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. This is what we find. They then returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Not good at math, but 500 people receive a command. 120 are doing the waiting. Question has to be asked, what happened to the other, you know, 380 to 400 people? What happened to the other, like, 75% of all of the believers, known believers at the time. 75% approximately. I mean, this is probably the question the church has been asking from its very foundation. What happened to the other 75%? I mean, there's this kind of rule of thumb. 
20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the resources, right? That's the way it is in lots of things, right? It seems like a lot of people are committed, and yet, really, there's 500, maybe 520, and we have waiting 120. And you get the understanding right from the beginning that maybe the church isn't so good at following directions. That something isn't going well. And I think it has to do with waiting. It has to do with waiting. Waiting tends to go sideways. Here's how it goes sideways for me. These things start to creep in. Doubt, fear, worry, insecurity, anger, distrust. And that starts to work itself out. I'll give you a couple ways it works itself out. One is a misperception of time. For me, I get a horrible misperception of time. All the time, it happens. So this is, uh, an example would be like my kids. My kids, I'll be in the store with them, and they will walk down this aisle, and almost every aisle, they find something they want, right? It's kind of like us as well. Walk down the aisle, and we're like, oh my goodness, I've, oh, I've always wanted that, always, keyword, right? I've wanted this like forever. I've never heard you even mention this toy before. No, it's, it's the most important thing. And so we have this kind of rule. You cannot make any impulse purchases. So we require them to wait. I know it stinks, but it's kind of, you have to wait for one of two reasons. This is a novel idea. Either you don't have the money for it yet. Okay. Hint, hint, right? Or you just need to think about it for a few moments before you buy it. Otherwise, like, we're just going to buy the next thing that catches our eye, right? So they have to, like, wait. And sometimes it's a whole day, like 24 hours. Sometimes it's 48 hours. Sometimes it might be a week before we're back at the store. And it's, like, killing them. Dad, I've been waiting forever. i got to have it. It's just, it's, this has been so long. I've wanted this my whole life. Okay? You, you hear these things, right? Exactly. Maybe you've heard of the, the illustration, the marshmallow test. Have you guys seen that before? Little video. I'm not going to show you the video, but... Marshmallow test where you set a marshmallow before a little kid and you say, okay, listen, you can eat that right now while I'm gone, or you could wait. When I come back, I'll give you a second one, and you can have both of them. And so there's just this agony. I'll show you some pictures of a kid just like, oh, I want it so bad. He sniffs it, holds it up, looks at it. I mean, he just is struggling, wanting this this thing. I, I don't know how many times in life that I'm at that point where I'm just kind of waiting and it feels like it's forever. I remember being in the hospital. My wife was uh, going into surgery. She went into surgery. Six hours later, she came out. Those six hours felt like weeks and months. It was six hours. But it felt like forever. And I think a part of our problem is a misperception of time. Just play a little game or a little quick test with you. Okay? This is a second, right? Second is not a lot of time. If you have a million seconds, how long ago was that? A million seconds went by. How long ago was that? How many minutes? How many hours? How many days? What do you got? Shout one out. No? A million seconds ago. It was about like 13 days if you round up. Okay? Not too bad, right? So if you go a little further, what's a billion seconds ago? Any guesses? Billion seconds ago. Give me something. Out loud. 100 days. I hear 100 days. Going once, going twice. 31 years. 
31 years. Yeah, it'd be 1982. I was like six. All right. If we go a trillion seconds ago, how long are we talking? 30 up there? Look at that. 31,688 years. That's good. That's good math. That's like 29,675 B.C. is about when that was, roughly. We have this misperception of time. We feel as if we've been waiting forever. And I'm guessing the disciples felt the same way. They're sitting up in the upper room like, and it's been like two days. <laughs> Are like, we sure, he, do we hear this right? Like, is this happening or what? You know? Here's another thing is I get ahead of God. I just go, I, I'm going to just do this myself. I'll figure it out. God, God gave me a bunch of instructions. First one was wait. The second one was go. <laughs> Let's get on to the next one, right? Let's go. Let's do this thing, right? And so maybe you just go, hey, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to work out my own solution to the problem. I know what's best. An example, a perfect example would be in the Old Testament, you got Abraham and Sarah. They had to wait for a son. It's going to come. It's going to take a little while. And then Sarah comes to Abraham and says, hey, I think two of the worst words ever when God tells you to do something and then your response is, well, I think, okay, not, not generally good. I think maybe you should sleep with the servant and then we could have a kid. That'd be great, right? Bad answer. Bad. It didn't go well. But the disciples, they find themselves in this place and maybe they just decided to get ahead of God. I'm tired of waiting. I know what the next thing is, so I'm going to get to it. And they don't wait for the Spirit. They get ahead of God. Another one is, maybe it just leads to inactivity. I mean, waiting, the definitions would be to expect something, to anticipate something, to be in a state of readiness, to be prepared. But sometimes, doubt just allows us to move into inactivity. Start to go, maybe I wasn't even supposed to do this. Did I hear that right? Is this what I'm supposed to be about? Maybe I just got it all wrong. And so we just decide to do nothing. Instead of growing in faith, instead of pursuing Christ more, we just go, man, this isn't even worth it. And all of those lead to, for lack of a better word, just disobedience. Not following the command, not seeing it through. So here's a few things that I think the disciples learned as a part of the process and maybe we could learn too. Let me wrap up with these. First one is this, is that waiting reminds me that I'm not God. Maybe you guys don't need to be reminded of that, but I occasionally need to be reminded that I'm not in charge. Here's a couple ways it shows up. Waiting forces me to give up control. I want control. Maybe you want control. Maybe you want to call the shots. Maybe you're the kind of person that feels like they always have to drive if they're going somewhere. Or they always need the remote, right? Or they always have to call the final shot. The disciples probably wanted it to work on their, their timetable. Where it's like, hey, God, I, I kind of have this planned out. I've got my timetable. It should be set. Why don't you get on my timetable? And so the disciples wanted, or they were forcing this control. But waiting makes us lose control. Here might be a question you could discuss in small group. What are you trying to control in your life right now? What situation, what person are you seeking to control? And what do you need to do to begin to let go of that control? Here's the second thing that 
relates to me understanding I'm not God. It forces, waiting forces a dependency on God. Waiting forces me to recognize that I am dependent on someone other than myself. There's a poet that said this, Waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by ourselves bring about what we hope for. We wait in darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope because it forces a dependency. Henry Nouwen made this statement about waiting. He talks about this illustration of a trapeze artist. That waiting is that moment when the trapeze artist lets go, arcs out into the air, and he's at that space where he can't go back and catch what he just let go of. But the person who's about to catch him isn't there yet. And so he's in this place of like nothingness. That place is waiting. That place is dependency. That place means you're no longer in control. You're no longer dependent on yourself. You're completely at the hands of God. The song we just the song we just sang said this. There's a key phrase I heard this morning. It said, "Everything hinges on your arrival." Speaking of God, everything hinges on your arrival. Is that the way that you're living? That if He doesn't show up. This waiting doesn't come through. And I'm, I'm done for. That's what waiting forces us to recognize. The last is that waiting changes our priorities. Waiting changes our priorities. What I mean is, when we get into a place of waiting, what tends to happen is we start out waiting, and the thing that's most important in the waiting is the thing that I want. It's the job the situation, the relationship, the thing that I need, the thing that, as like my kids say, I've been waiting for forever. I want so bad, right? That thing is the focus. And then slowly, over time, in our waiting, it shifts off of that thing onto the thing, God. Because now I'm calling out. Now I'm asking, God, what? Why are you delaying? I need you to show up. I need you to supply. I need you. I'm not in control. It's you. I'm dependent. I need you. And so it moves off this thing that I long for to adjusting what I'm longing for. Moves me from a place of like, hey, I've got this and I'm just tired of waiting to a place of like, God, I'm waiting on you. I need you. And that's the exact place that the disciples found themselves, right? They're waiting for the Spirit to show up. Waiting for Jesus to be in fullness a part of their life, to indwell them. That moment shifts us from what it is we're waiting for to who it is we're waiting for. And our priorities change. So maybe asking in small group, where do your priorities, where do my priorities need to be adjusted? And how do I adjust those priorities? The season of waiting is tough. But the first command, the foundation of the church, is wait. Don't get ahead of the Holy Spirit. Don't get ahead of God. Don't. Just wait. Let's pray.